Well, this is the last message in the uh, series we've taken through the book of James. As I said at the start, couldn't cover every single verse uh, in just a six-week series, but we're going to close out with this theme today. Christ returns, FCF Post. Not today, obviously, but that is the theme of today. The kingdom of God on earth is here. So we're going to end in the book of James with this theme and you're going to find that this is a major theme throughout scripture let me take you to one more portion of scripture in Jude chapter 1 there's only one chapter in Jude verse 17 it says but dear friends remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold they said to you in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them, meaning these scoffers. Uh, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones, that, that is the angels, to judge everyone and to convict all of them of the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the, what is the word? Defiant. Pause for a minute. I can't count in 40 years of ministry. I, I, I honestly... It still bothers me intensely to this day. I understand people are at different places, but when I meet with people, interact with people, and even hear other people, you know, online and in the world of celebrityhood, um, say defiant and let me add ignorant things about Christ and about the Word of God. It, it, it just rips me. And, and this is talking about a time when all their arrogant, defiant, ignorant chatter will be silenced and and I I'll be frank with you I look forward to that time I really do all of their defiant words and ungodly sinners of ungodly sinners have spoken against him there's coming a time when Christ returns everything changes this is the game-changing truth everything when Jesus came the first time he really dealt with spiritual matters the the tremendous barrier that Satan had put between humans and and God Satan had slandered the character of God so that most of us run from him instead of toward him Christ comes and reveals that God is not just the almighty creator and sustainer of the universe but he's the most sacrificially loving gentle merciful kind beautiful being in the universe Christ on that cross was meant to remove our doubts our our distrust of God and restore our trust but the second time he comes it's going to be circumstantial he came the first time dealing with with spiritual matters the most important matters the things that are going to change a person's life in this world and the one to come but when he comes the second time it's all going to be different it's going to be very hands-on very circumstantial the power that he's going to exhibit then it's not going to be just power to remove the distrust between humans and himself it's going to be power to change the circumstances in all of society it will never be the same again now, some of you may or may not realize this. Let me give you a little, little idea here about the number of times that the second coming of Christ is mentioned in Scripture. In the Old Testament, 1845 Old Testament references to the second coming, not the first, the second coming of Christ. In the New Testament, 318, and the New Testament is a lot smaller than the Old Testament, that comes out to about once every 25 verses in the New Testament, the second coming of Christ is talked about 
Now, as we read the scripture, we may not be so aware of this because sometimes these references to the second coming, they're, they're just very subtle. They're just kind of woven in to ideas about other things. I'm going to turn you to one as an example. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, it says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What does it say? Until he comes. Now, many of you know this portion of Scripture is talking about what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in the verses went before it, he talks about how Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this bread represents my body, which is about to be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he takes the, the cup of wine. And he says, this cup represents my blood that is about to be shed for you. And once again, he says, do this in remembrance of me. There's only two ceremonies, only two that scripture tells Christ followers to follow one is this the Lord's Supper where where we remember that no matter who we are where we're at how, how many mistakes we've made how in process we still may be our God the creator of the universe the sustainer of the universe loves us with an unconditional sacrificial love so much so that he literally went to a cross to prove his love for us and his trustworthiness and each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper it's meant to just push it a little further down in our minds because sometimes sometimes the the kindness of God the grace of God the mercy of God it feels a little too good to be true and so God gives us this ceremony to remember that he literally loved us to death when we were still when we were still sinners it says in Romans 5 8 that he gave his sacrificial love. The other ceremony that we have in Scripture is baptism. And once a person makes that decision to put their trust in Christ and become his follower, Jesus said they should be publicly immersed in water, showing that that old self that followed its own ways and ideas is dead and buried, spiritually speaking, and a new self rises up out of the water to live as a fully devoted follower of Christ for the rest of his or her life. Two ceremonies we have. Now today as we still keep our minds on that theme of the second coming of Christ we're gonna celebrate right now the Lord's Supper or communion now you don't have to be a member of this church to participate in this but I do want to focus your attention on one thing if you have not authentically made your decision to put your trust in Christ and become his follower in other words let me get real blunt about this if you haven't thought through it that in a world where everybody's following somebody I mean actually following somebody most of the time it's following ourselves, and we're just kind of doing life the way we feel like but in a world where everybody's following somebody if you haven't made your decision to put your trust in Christ and become his follower well then technically speaking you should hold off participating in communion because this communion or Lord's Supper celebration it is for those that are firm and clear they have put their trust in Christ they don't give a rip if anybody else is following him he has won their trust and they're going to follow him fully and freely and forever because he has won their trust this celebration is for those now you say Randy that makes it sound like you got to be perfect no 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 far from it in, in fact it's it's my awareness of my imperfection that brought me to Christ and keeps me dependent upon him but it does mean that I have authentically trusted in him so that when he says learn it Randy I learn it when he says stop it Randy I stop it when he says start it Randy I start it why 
because I actually trust him more than I trust myself. That is what it means to be a follower of Christ, nothing less. Let's not water this down and lie to ourselves. Let's be frank and honest. But it's open to anyone that says, you know what? I'm going to put my trust in Jesus. And when we put our trust in Jesus and authentically become his follower, he promises us the forgiveness of all of our sins, all of them, even the ones that eat us alive late at night sometime, months and years after they occurred. He says they're forgiven too. And he promises the gift of everlasting life in his kingdom for all who simply make the decision to put their trust in him and become his follower. So if that describes you, you have trusted Christ and are his follower, we welcome you. You don't have to be a member of this church. We welcome you to participate in the celebration where we remember that when we were still sinners, our God loved us so much that he gave himself joyfully, sacrificially on the cross. It says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus foresaw the joy ahead when he gave himself for us. So we're going to partake now uh, of the elements and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now once again, is there anybody that needs the elements that did not receive them? Okay. Scripture says that the last night Jesus was with his disciples, he started this ceremony and he told them in Luke chapter 22, he said that, that he wouldn't participate in drinking the fruit of the vine again until until the kingdom of God came, meaning his return. He was always talking about his return. Matthew 24, he gave 18 different signs that will precede his return. The scripture is full of the theme of the return of Christ. But he said that evening, he said that this bread that he started handing to his disciples, he said, it represents my body, which is about to be broken for you. Now he had told them at the beginning of his ministry, he was going to die. He had told them in the middle. He had told them two times toward the end. But they still couldn't quite, maybe they just didn't want to believe that it could ever happen. Having been with Jesus three and a half years, they just didn't want to believe he would ever leave. But he kept telling them he had to die and go to the cross. So he said the bread, it represents his broken body. And then he said the, the juice, it represents his blood shed for us. So every time we partake of this, it's to remind ourselves we don't deserve the love of God at all, but it's just because of who He is. He just loves us with a sacrificial, undying, completely understanding and accepting love. And each time we partake of that, we're supposed to kind of embrace those truths, internalize those truths so that we can be strengthened and we can go on and live faithfully for Him. So we're going to start now by, by taking the bit of bread, if you have that, and it says, that night he took the bread and said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Same evening, he said the, the cup, the juice, the wine represented his blood. And once again, he said, do this in remembrance. Let's remember the Lord's sacrifice and his sacrificial love for us. Let's drink. Will you join me in prayer? Father, you know us and you know how hard it is to fathom this sacrificial, unconditional love. Because sometimes the truth be told, we, we have a hard time even starting to stand ourselves. 
We thank you for this assurance. We thank you for this grace. We thank you that you call us to take these physical elements to remind ourselves of this truth, that we are loved with an eternal, sacrificial, grace-filled love. May those truths grab hold of our hearts as we sit before you this day and, and let your spirit speak to us through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Can the church? Amazing love, how can it be? And you, my King, would die for me. Amazing love, amazing love, I know it's true. And it's my joy to he made for us. We'll go back now to uh, the last message in the book of James, our theme today. And once again, it's this. It's Christ's return. Now, I want to share a verse with you next that kind of sets the context for how different the second coming is going to be from the first coming it's one of those verses it's easy to read it kind of quickly and not pause and say wait a minute wait a minute what what would this actually look like what what would this actually mean so here it is it's in Matthew 13 Jesus was giving a series of parables and he's explaining one of the parables and he says the son of man will send his angels and they will what is the key word there remove from his kingdom everything that causes causes sin and all who do what now you gotta you have to pause and contemplate that one for a minute when christ returns he is saying that his angels are going to go through this planet they're going to sift through every little crevice and everything that has been causative of sin causative of evil some of you're going to lose some of your favorite tv shows me i might too but he's going to sift through 
these angels are going to sift through all of society, all the layers of society, and remove all the causes of sin, but they're not going to stop there. They're going to remove all the evildoers. Now, I want you to think about waking up to a world where everything is different. I mean, the world cranks on today, like I said last week in the message about the world itself. It, it's, a, it's a system. It's a sophisticated system. It, it's got a lot of power. It's got a lot of money. It's got a lot of wealth. It controls virtually everything, but it's a system that cranks on just as though Jesus never came, just as though Jesus never lived, never did the miracles that he did, never taught, never died a sacrificial death, and never rose again. It pretty much ignores him. If it acknowledges Jesus' existence at all, it's as an inconsequential add-on for anybody that happens to need that kind of thing. When Jesus returns... It all ends, all the arrogant sayings, all the defiant sayings, all the systemic evil, all the geopolitical evil, all the social evil, all the injustice, all the hatred, all the prejudice, all the crime, all the sickness, sorrow, accidents, and death. It ends, it ends. He is going to send his angels and they're going to cleanse this planet. He came the first time to bring about spiritual change and that's wonderful because it removed the barrier between human beings and God he showed us the truth about God that he's loving and trustworthy and worthy of our utmost uh, devotion but the second time he comes he's going to deal with circumstances sometimes people mock where is he where is his coming it's been 2,000 years now and everything cranks on just the way it, it says it would what they don't realize is they're actually quoting a verse from 2 Peter. In the first beginning verses of 2 Peter, it says that is exactly what will be the prevalent attitude of people just prior to the return of Christ. They will scoff and say, hey, where, where's this big coming? Nothing's happened yet. But then it goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 8, it says, but they forget one thing, that a day with the Lord is as, somebody finish it for me, a thousand years. And a thousand years is as a day. And then it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, God is not slow concerning his promise, meaning his return, as some count slowness, but he is not willing that, that anyone should perish, be destroyed, but that all would come to, does anybody know the word? Repentance. Repentance. Repentance means that I change my mind, I change my attitude toward God, whereas I didn't trust him, I didn't regard him supremely, now I trust him and regard him supremely, whereas I did my will instead of his will, now because I trust him, I do his will instead of my will. That's what repentance means. It is not just mere sorrow for my sins, although that can certainly be a part of it, but it is a complete changing of the mind. It is a 180-degree turn in my attitude toward God and my attitude towards sin, whereas sin before I considered sort of a pleasurable thing to dabble around with, to experiment with, to see what brings me pleasure in life. Now I recognize when Jesus calls something sin, he who loves me more than I love myself and he who knows what's best and wants what's best tells me that sin is that which is always destructive for me and destructive for others. It might not appear so in the beginning, but it will sooner or later. It comes with a, with a hidden price tag in most cases. And most of us in this room, we know that by experience. Now, James, as we close out the book, the Spirit of God is leading James to write to a group of people that they were eager for Jesus to return. 
They were, remember, undergoing hard circumstances. 11 years earlier, a persecution that broke out in Jerusalem. They had to flee for their lives. Most of them were relocating, trying to start their life over again. They had lost friends, family, businesses. They were kind of strangers in a strange land trying to establish identity again. And they literally were sick of their circumstances. They were sick of waking up every day and having life so hard. They were sick of the pain that they were feeling mentally and emotionally, not to mention sociologically and probably economically. They were just sick of it, and they wanted. They remembered how Jesus had said that he would return, and they wanted him to return. They wanted him to return right now. Now, how many of you know, though, that even Christians can sometimes want Jesus to return, but, but maybe not for the right reasons? When I first became a Christian... I was doing construction work. I did construction work for 17 years, and, it, and I would be on jobs. Now, I was a brand-new Christian. I didn't know a lot about the Bible, but I did know Jesus said he would return. And so I hated what I was doing. I hated the construction work. Did it for 17 years, but hated it, never loved it. Gave it my best, but didn't love it. Um, and so I'd be on the job, and I'd be thinking, man, I hope that trumpet sounds today. <laughs> I mean, really, I was, I was a new Christian. I was thinking that way. I didn't know much about what the Bible taught. I did know it said that he would return. But it was not for the right reasons, right? Not for the right. It's kind of like the, the people that they max out their credit cards. Every credit card they have, they fail to pay their mortgage for six months or in their car payment for six months. You know, they run over the neighbor's cat. They chew out their boss and quit. They, they blast their in-laws. And then they say, come, Jesus, come. Help me. Help me, Jesus. You know? Sometimes we want Jesus to come because we're so darn uncomfortable. We're, we're, we're so tired of the struggle, man. We're just tired. We're worn out. That's the condition the people that the Spirit of God was using James to write to. That was their condition. Let, let's, let's start in the text itself. Here we go, James 5. Now listen, you rich people. James starts speaking prophetically. This is really fascinating. It points down to conditions at the end of the age. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Now this is not literal. It's figurative. And I'm going to explain what he's talking about. Your gold and silver are corroded. We know that gold doesn't corrode. So James is talking about something else. You have hoarded wealth. You have hoarded wealth when? When? In the last days. Just prior to the return of Christ. Hoarded wealth in the last days. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Then he's going to go on and talk to the Christ followers. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Now, I want to talk about this first part. When he's looking down toward the end of time, and he sees an extraordinarily wealthy group of people inhabiting planet earth. And he says some odd things. He says, you know, your wealth is rotted, your silver and gold is credited. Well, what, what, what is he talking about? Here's what he's saying. There is going to come a time, just prior to the return of Christ, where the things that we look to as a source of wealth will be useless, valueless. Let's just pretend that I had a stack of gold, you know, my height, which is not very great height, but nevertheless, if it's gold, it would still be worth a lot. And it went from here to the end of the stage, probably be billions and billions of dollars. But if the grid were to be down for a month and I had no access to water, 
or food would, would, would the gold do me any good could I could I drink the gold could I eat the gold no it's what James is talking about James is talking about a time in human history where the things that human beings depend upon for wealth will be worthless and the scripture gives us some warnings about that period of time we can't dwell on that too much here now he's going to start talking though to the believers he says to them as they look at the wealthy people and they were envious they were jealous they were tired of being beaten down economically they were tired of just struggling to survive be patient we're going to see that word come up a couple times be patient then brothers and sisters until the Lord's coming they wanted a circumstantial change there's probably none of us in here that doesn't have an area in our life that we wouldn't like to have God answer our prayer immediately the way we would like to have it answered so that some circumstance, some situation in our life would be changed. You know what I'm just going to ask you? How many of you, if you could blink your eyes and get God to answer the way you would like Him to, there's a circumstance in your life you'd like to see change, you'd like to see improved. Can I see your hands? I don't know that there's one hand that was not up. So we can understand what these folks were feeling because sometimes the circumstantial changes, the relational changes, the physiological changes, the mental emotional changes, the economic changes, the, the vocational changes that we want to see, God just seems to say, not listening to you, not doing it. I'm not sure what that was. It sounded like an interesting jingle of some sort <laughs> um, so that was their circumstance let's go on in the text you too here he is talking to the believers again the followers of Christ you too be patient and stand firm meaning stay faithful to Christ stay faithful to the word of God be obedient to God don't yield to your temptations and desires to find some way to get a quick fix or to alter your mood or to get some pleasure even though it might cause you to run headlong into God's word and his will be patient stand firm because the Lord's coming is near now this was written by the way in about 49 AD the book of James is probably the first book we have in our New Testament James and book of Galatians right around the same time so it's about 19 years after Jesus had died and risen again and they're thinking very much and wanting very much for Jesus to return then now let me just seed something in your mind for thought what we now know is that the dating of Jesus' life and death were slightly off. And instead of 33 A.D. being the death of Jesus at age 33, we're pretty certain now his death was really 30 A.D. He was born B.C., a couple years B.C. So I want to ask you a question. If you go from, from 30 to 2030, how many years is that? mathematical test <laughs> 30 to 2030 can somebody venture a guess 2,000 years and you told me earlier in this message it says in 2nd Peter 3 8 that a day with the Lord is as a what thousand years and a thousand years as a day so isn't it interesting that come 2030 it will be two days since Jesus death and resurrection you remember when, when Jesus was telling his disciples prior to his death on the cross he kept saying 
The third day, however, he says, ah, I'm going to go, and the religious leader is going to reject me, and they're going to beat me, and they're going to kill me. But the third day, how many remember what he says? The third day, I will what? I will rise. Randy, are you saying that you think we might be in the last seven-year sabbatical cycle before Jesus returns? I don't know. But I think it's possible. I think we should watch this Rosh Hashanah forward for the next seven years very carefully as wise followers of Christ. We may have a hundred more years, but we may not. So, something to think about. The Lord's coming is near. Verse 10, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have what? persevered they kept faithful to God when they were tempted not to be when they were tempted to do things that they know would not be in alignment with God's will you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about the Lord is full of compassion and mercy and if you read the story of Job you know they went through great suffering but then God disproportionately rewards him you got to tuck that away disproportionate reward is the way God works and James is saying to these followers then that, that you've got to remember, you might be going through something that is very difficult now. It might be unjust. It may not be fair at all. You may be being treated far below what you deserve. But just stay faithful to God, and he will disproportionately reward you. You know he did it for Job. You know that the prophets, they suffer too, but we count them now as wonderful models. And he's saying, take their model as something to incentivize you to be patient and wait for the Lord's coming so here's what the Spirit of God really wants us to take in today this point we are to eagerly anticipate the future perfection when Christ returns and his angels root out all the causes of evil and all the evildoers and he sets up his kingdom for 1,000 years on this earth the Bible says specifically that he sets up his kingdom for 1,000 years you can read about it in Revelation 20 and at the end of that 1,000 years is when we enter into the eternal time when God creates Revelation 21 a new heaven and a new earth where there's no more sickness, sorrow, pain or death but for 1,000 years Christ rules physically he's physically present ruling on this earth and so are those who are his people so if you have put your trust in Christ and are his follower you will be in a new resurrection body a new really cool body that that you know never gets tired and never has bad pain and all these kinds of things you will rule and reign with Christ we will be his governmental officials as it were for that thousand years and all the millions and perhaps billions of children that are born during that millennial reign they, they will awaken to life in a world where evil has been expunged and where Jesus Christ is present and those that love him are present and they will grow up in a world that is quite different than the one that you and I grew up in and multitudes I suspect many many more multitudes will trust in Christ and live with him for eternity to come who grow up during that thousand years that he's literally physically ruling and reigning on earth that means that everything that's done everywhere all the time will be done the way that Christ wants it done 
That means that you'll never have to have the the emotion of fear again in that world. You'll never feel unloved. You'll never feel unwelcome. You'll never feel rejected. You'll always feel wanted. You'll always feel you belong. You'll know you're always safe. You'll know your children are always safe. You'll experience happiness and joy on a level that you and I can't touch, cannot touch right now. All that and much, much more when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom for that thousand years. And God wants each and every one of us to eagerly anticipate that future perfection to the point that we stay discontented with things as they are right now in this world. It, it, is, it is not something that is good for our souls if we can just go along and get along and blend in and think like this world is just fine the way it is, a world that's full of sickness, sorrow, pain, and death, and accidents, and injustice, and hatred, and prejudice, and violence, and crime, and war, and all the stuff that just immer- we're immersed in it every day if we get to the place where we just say oh well it's just the way life is that's problematic that shows that our souls have deteriorated to a point that we're not we're not responding to the abnormality of these conditions in the way that that a healthy soul would respond to it so we should be very discontent determinedly discontent with this world as it is but it doesn't mean that we're to be personally discontent with God and his role and his relationships and his responsibility for us so there's this tension where I refuse to accept this world the way it is but I will accept whatever conditions God has seen fit to put me in for my role and my relationships and my responsibilities during this little period called time I can be content with such things as God gives me but I am not content with this world as it is so I'm eagerly, I'm eagerly anticipating the future perfection that will come when Christ returns, and he will return, and it changes everything at that point. First Peter gives us something to think about. It says, so then have your minds ready for action. Keep alert and set your hope. Notice it's saying you might be hoping in lots of things that are, that are not worthy, that are not certain. He says, set your hope. Focus it, fixate it. Set your hope completely completely on the blessing which will be given you when Jesus Christ is what is revealed that's the second coming so the second coming is meant to give to you and I an unshakable hope and we are meant to sift our other hopes and focus our our body our main body of hope on what will be brought to us when Christ returns because that's unshakable that's certain Titus says something that's a little different but it's equally important it says while we wait for the blessed hope we're waiting for it the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ notice Jesus is called God because he is God our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good so we're we're waiting we're anticipating the people that James was writing to they they needed to stay eager they needed to anticipate but they also had to learn to be patient because Jesus was not going to come in their lifetime and they should have known that there are some people you may be one that think that Jesus can return at any time that is 
absolutely not the teaching of the scripture for an example Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24 that before he would return the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed every stone would be torn down when James was writing to the people he was writing to it had only been 19 years since Jesus died and rose again the temple was still standing the temple was still functioning the temple would still be standing until 70 AD but then just as Jesus said it was torn down and it's never existed since there's multitude of prophecies that need to be fulfilled before Jesus returns Jesus gave them to us himself as well as multitudes of the Old Testament prophets so that the generation the final generation that would actually experience the return of Christ we would be prepared we would not be caught off guard by it so this notion that Jesus could return at any time it's just not biblical it's not true at all so we are waiting we're patiently waiting for the blessed hope it's going to bring the circumstantial changes that all of us want should want and should hold on to very tightly the book of hebrews 9 it talks about the first coming compared to the second it says likewise christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of humanity take them away to bring us to a place where we're we're not going to be participating in sin and after that he will appear a second time this time he will not deal with sin but he will save those who are what who eagerly wait for him when you talk about the second coming it always it always brings uh, uh, an assortment of responses from people right now I, I can guarantee you that some of you as you hear me speaking about the second coming it makes you uncomfortable um, bear with me particularly younger people tend to feel uncomfortable with it because because younger people think man I'm not even married yet I want to I want to get married and I haven't raised any kids yet. I want to have some kids and I want to have a house of my own and and so they're they're thinking that if Jesus returns they're going to miss something okay not going to miss anything for a thousand years people are going to continue to marry and have babies there'll be better conditions then you're not going to miss anything the other part of this is that you and I tend to think in life in, on certain cycles of, of um, chronological development. In other words, once you get to, to 40 or so, it is not unusual for an American to think, my best days are behind me. My be- now what? Now what? <laughs> That's so laughable. If you're a Christ follower, all of your best days all of them are ahead of you You haven't experienced a one not a one until you are in a world where there's no more sin sorrow sickness pain and death and you can see christ face to face and everybody loves god loves righteousness loves one another and where there is no such thing as fear at all then you don't you haven't experienced one of your best days yet your best days are all ahead of you and the experiences that God has for us all the best follow me on this one now all the best experiences that we have in this life and there are some good ones really good ones they're like little samples you know how you walk through some of those stores and they they got the little thing set up you want want this piece of cheese (laughs) the best the most exciting the most euphoric they're just a little sample of cheese your best is yet to come that's the promise of God 
that, that's based on the resurrection of Christ that that promise is one that we can depend on and be confident about so that brings us to the next point patiently endure the present imperfection now remember what I said you stay discontented with this world as it is do not ever become content with things as they are in, in a world where where there's crime and hatred and sickness and sorrow and accidents don't don't ever get content don't ever accept that as normal it is not normal but at the same time we do have to learn to patiently endure the present imperfection listen James was writing to people that he knew were miserable they were going through tough tough circumstances let me tell you what else James knew he knew that for the vast majority of them it was not going to be any better it was never going to get any better I don't know if you've had this experience but, I, but I've had to endure this a lot of times have you ever had to talk with somebody they're, they're, they're going through a tough time man they're in a jam they're, they're getting hit from every side and, and you just feel sick watching it happen to them and they're looking to you to say something that's going to give them a feeling of some kind of relief and I hope you've never had this happen but I've certainly had it happen more than enough times in my life. So you're looking at their circumstance and you know you've got to say something honest. And what you have to end up saying to them is even though God loves you and he's for you and he's with you, this is probably going to be what you have to experience and adjust your expectations to experience for the rest of your life. It's probably not going to get any better. But... God's still with you it still has meaning it has a great deal of purpose but frankly unless you want to just plunge into sin you're likely going to stay locked in to the very difficult struggles and unhappy circumstances that you find yourself in it's not going to change folks all, all we got to do is use a little common sense if we would have been born on the streets of Calcutta India instead of here our life would be very different some people life is hard and it stays hard life is sad and it stays sad life is full of pain and the pain is going to stay and, and you have to be realistic about this there are people many of us maybe most of us in certain areas we're like we're going to have to learn to patiently endure the present imperfections in our life nobody's life is perfect we t we tend to look at people and we say i don't know why i can't have what they have i'm a christian too and they've got it made they've got it all nobody's got it all and nobody's got it made in this life it is impossible to have it all or to have it made so when this is the truth we have to patiently endure the present imperfection what can god give to us to stabilize us to strengthen us to motivate us to keep us full of enthusiasm when we know life is just going to be an ongoing unhappy don't be afraid of that word you can have joy and still have unhappiness circumstantially but it's going to be an unhappy struggle probably all the way through to the end for some here we go Romans speaks to it in Romans chapter 8 it says I'm sure, the Apostle Paul writing, he says, I'm sure that our suffering 
Notice the normality in the way that he talks about it. I'm sure that our suffering now cannot be, what does it say? Cannot be compared to the shining greatness that he is going to give us. Now, we're Americans, and, and this, this doesn't motivate us very much. This doesn't excite us very much. Because what it's saying unashamedly, and what the New Testament says unashamedly, is that what awaits those that have put their trust in Christ in this life, what awaits us when His kingdom does come and His will is done, what awaits us when we receive our resurrection bodies and we are transformed to the image of Christ, what awaits us in eternity is so stunningly spectacular and beyond our imagination to even understand that it makes the most difficult, painful circumstances in this life. Let me go further. Lifelong, painful, difficult circumstances. Lifelong. It makes it look laughable. But we're Americans and we don't like to hear that. What we want is God to give us heaven then and heaven now. Right? I'm just like you. Of course we do. God made us in his own image. We, we seek happiness all the time. There's nothing wrong with that. But the truth is, more than most of us, or, or, or more than not, most of us are not going to experience all the happiness we want in every realm of our life. And so when we don't, what do we do? How do we deal with it? Well, here it is. I'm sure that our suffering now some of you are suffering now and you're suffering in situations that you may not see remedy just like the people that James was writing to it's not to be compared to the shining greatness that he is going to give you God says you know I know what I'm going to give you ahead and when you see it when you experience it instantaneously what you went through in your whole life is going to seem like nothing it's kind of like kind of like having a, a, a baby you know so there's the start of the pregnancy you know and then there's all the growth and the stretching and, and all the pains and different things but you're anticipating you're anticipating the birth of the child and, and then there's, there's the last part that's really painful so they say where <laughs> but somehow men we survive it <laughs> And when the child is born, men, we're happy and we're ready to do it again <laughs> because we're men. <laughs> no, but, but you know, that's, that's the reality. There are some things we can, we, can, we can measure to a degree that there's some things that are so stunningly beautiful and amazing that it makes the pain just forgettable very quickly. That, that's what God's trying to say. Now listen, listen to what I'm about to say because this is not going to help you a bit. What I just said is not going to help you one bit unless you prayerfully start to internalize this truth until your, your future, the God-promised future, is something that it's tangible. You, you know that it's there. You're counting on it. You know that it's promised by Christ and guaranteed by his resurrection until it's internalized, until it becomes your personal conviction. It won't help you at all. It'll just be something you heard in a message that, and you'll get so fixated on your present problem and it will grab hold of your emotions and just shake you all over the place until you make some kind of radically bad decision. This has to become a personal conviction. 
Let me take you, take you to another one. 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul, once again, he says, for our light, <laughs> our light momentary troubles. He was talking about a whole lifetime. Our light momentary troubles. Has anybody ever read the list of stuff that Paul went through in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20, starts in verse 23, it goes through, I think, verse 30. Has anybody ever read that list? If you just want a comedic look at Scripture of like, you've got to be kidding me. You went through that and you were God's main man? Uh, I'm, I'm serious. Read the list of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting verse 23. Anyway, our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that what? That what? Outweighs them all until I have a conviction that that is true. Until I know, even if I experience a lifetime of letdown, even if I experience in this lifetime that none of my dreams are going to come true, even if I experience in this lifetime that all those expectations that I had are not going to be, even if I come to the conclusion, man, this is going to be a grind until my last day, I've got to believe that what lies ahead far outweighs whatever emotional, mental, physical, economic, vocational, relational hardships I may go through because it's the truth. I just can't quite see it yet. The eternal glory that, that waits far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes. Now this is the part where we have to have the conviction and then start developing the habit of thinking about what we have on the other side that think about it regularly so we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen since what is seen is what temporary but what is unseen is what eternal now that's hard for us because I'm, I'm in this stuff man I'm in the skin and I'm in the right now and and I can't really see the unseen stuff except with the eyes of faith the eyes of trust I can see it and I can develop a, a sense of its governing reality if I fix my eyes on it I, I remind myself that it's there that it's true Romans 5 says more though it says that, that we can derive meaning from any and every circumstance that we encounter in life meaning is really important for human beings Romans 5 says this and that's not all we also celebrate in seasons of what suffering we celebrate in seasons of suffering I've never celebrated in a season of suffering what I have done though is remind myself of the truth that's here but I have to be honest I never celebrated in them we celebrate in seasons of suffering because we know we know that when we suffer we develop endurance which shapes our what our character my God-given god given capacities to experience life like God himself does and to love like he himself loves they, they grow they develop my character when our characters are refined we learn what it means to hope and anticipate God's goodness goes on and hope will never fail to satisfy our deepest need because the Holy Spirit that was given to us has flooded our hearts with God's love so 
what Romans is saying here, what the Apostle Paul is saying there is, is that there's never going to be an experience in your life or my life as a follower of Christ that doesn't have meaning. I am being stretched. I am being expanded. My capacities are being stirred so that I can become more like Christ and I can think the way he thinks and feel the way he feels and experience what he experiences and ultimately learn to, to love the way he loves. So everything I go through no matter what the difficulty is, until my very last breath. And sometimes we have this fight in our minds. We say, this, this particular suffering does not make any sense. This, God, I just don't get it. This, this makes no sense. Yes, it does make sense. It makes sense if you really believe what Scripture says, that, that God's working in us and He's refining our character. And sometimes these pressurized, unpleasant circumstances are just the right set of dynamics to kind of catapult our character forward toward Christ's likeness. Now, of course, that is if we stay faithful to God and we cling to Him and we hold to His Word during those times. If we don't, of course, it just becomes a, a, a very messy disaster. First Peter, and this is where we'll close. This is the way we had this earlier in the message. He says, So then, have your minds ready for action. Keep alert and set your hope and then what's the next word completely on the blessing which will be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed that's the second coming let me just be very very frank and forthright with you you need I need every human being needs a hope that nothing that this life dishes out can take away from us you need I need every human needs I need a hope when my heart has been breaking I need a hope when I've been betrayed I need a hope when I've been rejected I need a hope when my physical body is breaking down I need a hope when emotionally I'm in excruciating pain and in that place that is so dark that I can't see any happiness ever again for myself I need a hope that can literally enable me to laugh and to be courageous and to be bold and refuse to plunge into self-pity, refuse to plunge into bitterness, refuse to ever consider that God may have abandoned me. I, I need a hope that is so rock solid I can laugh through my pain and through my storms. And as I look into the, the dark abyss of a life that may never have what I had hoped I would have, that may never experience what I hoped I would experience, may never possess what I had hoped I would possess. Because I know something. I know, I know there's something on the other side. It's real. It's tangible. It is disproportionately good. The best experiences in this life are just like a sample of cheese compared to it. And it's been guaranteed to me by the promise of my Creator and my King who has also said He is coming again. And when He comes, He will change every circumstance so that He and His angels will root out everything that has ever caused unhappiness to any of us and pain. And when that kingdom comes and when we receive all that He has for us in an instant, just like the birth of a new baby, the pain is forgotten. And you and I, we will enter into the life that we were always meant for. One of the reasons that we always want more in this life, no matter how good it is, is because we were made for more. We were made for a life of perfect, unending love and happiness. 
But until Christ returns, that life is impossible. Now, if we adjust our expectations, we can enjoy a lot of the good things that are still available in this life. And truth be told, some of us have easier rides than others. But you need a hope that in case your ride turns dark, like it did for these followers of Jesus that James was writing to, that no matter how dark it gets, you've got a vision of what's awaiting you that you will be able to laugh because what you know is yours and unshakable will enable you to be strong and courageous and stabilized and, and you will refuse, like I said earlier, to, to throw yourself into the, the, the pool of self-pity and bitterness that we all get tempted to fall into. It's your hope. It's guaranteed by Christ. Let me close with this. Unless we're eagerly, unless, that's big, unless we're eagerly anticipating the future perfection, I'm anticipating Christ's coming. I'm looking to see it alive in my lifetime. You should be too. If you knew what I knew about the prophecies of the Bible, you would know that the expectation that you will live to see Christ's return is a very realistic, sane expectation. Unless we're eagerly anticipating the future perfection, we will have a hard time patiently enduring the present imperfection. That's reality. I hope that you will all, we'll leave here today with those, we'll be those that for the rest of our lives, no matter what life dishes, we will be anticipating the second coming of Christ and all that that will bring. Yes, that is our hope, our blessed hope, our unshakable hope. And that's the gift of God to each and every one of us that have put our trust in Christ and become his followers. I hope I just described everybody in this room. I hope every one of you have said, man, let the rest of the world follow whoever it wants. Christ has won my heart. He's won my trust. And I'm, I'm going to follow him fully and I'm following him freely and I'm going to follow him forever. Amen. To such, he says, well done. Your sins are forgiven. You have the gift of everlasting life and you have something waiting for you that's just going to shock you. And you're going to laugh at all the pain that you endured during this time. Trust that. Take it to heart. Let's go out of here with, with our hearts full of anticipation of that second coming of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you first of all that there's every indication that you have allowed us to be the generation that will literally physically with our eyes see the return of Christ and the setting up of your kingdom on this earth give us the strength give us the courage give us the the fixation of what lies ahead that will stabilize us in life's most difficult dark times we ask all this in Christ's name amen